0: Well, it's good to see you this morning. i glad that uh, you have joined us for our kickoff to our study through the book entitled Radical, Taking Back Your Faith from the American Dream, where we're challenged to take seriously the claims and the demands of Christ upon those who call themselves his children and his followers. If you're just now joining us, a little background uh, on that book and where we are, David Platt is the pastor of the church at Brook Hills in Birmingham, Alabama. And a couple of years ago, he preached a series of messages uh, to his church, just kind of sharing his heart and what he was going through as he looked at the demands of Christ and said, you know what, I'm not where I need to be as a pastor uh, in, in following The Lord Jesus Christ and being serious about these demands and he said church I don't know that we're where we need to be when we look at what it is that Jesus calls us to and sets before us and so from that he wrote the book entitled Radical and it has been rocking the worldview uh, the belief systems and the complacency honestly of believers especially in America but also around the world And I've read through the books a couple of times. I read it myself. We've had a discussion group and beginning to work through it now for us as a congregation. And it has been challenging every time I've read through it. And and, and here's how I summarize this book to people. David Platt takes the commands of Christ for his followers and he asks the question, did Jesus really mean what he said? Did Jesus really mean what he said when he spoke these words and these challenges? And if we say yes to that question, then our next question is, then what does it mean for me to obey these claims today in the year 2011, even if no one else in our world, even if no one else in our church is doing it, what is it going to look like for me to take these claims seriously and put them into practice in my life? And I really thought about as we came to this, uh, to this series of just uh, showing you the videos of David Platt preaching, because they're available on the internet, uh, and they're really excellent messages. He does sound a little bit like Seinfeld, kind of as you're watching, sometimes the tone of his voice and his inflection, uh, but they, they really are good. But truthfully, as I thought about that, my, my fear was this, that you guys would say, wow, there are men like that who can preach out there. If so, let's get rid of Curtis and go find one of those, you know? So I was like, "Eh, I don't know if I'm going to do that or not. And, and, you know, just in that line, two things. First of all, we all can't preach like David Platt. And secondly, it takes a 75% majority to get rid of me. So keep those two things. In your mind should you do that (laughs) Just messing with you a little bit But I did on the back of your note sheet There are some uh, websites on there You can go, these messages are available Some printed material for you to read There are some testimonials uh, written as well Where people are kind of sharing what the Lord's doing in their life And how they're responding uh, to these challenges and these things So if you have time, I really encourage you to interact with that material But for now, if you would, turn with me to the Gospel of John chapter 11 The Gospel of John chapter 11, and I want to show you a passage that, that if I'm honest, it terrifies me. This passage terrifies me about reading the claims of Christ and then thinking about the modern day applications of these claims as they're presented in the book Radical. And what scares me so much about this is that I and that we will be confronted with the demands and the commands of Jesus and that nothing in our lives will change. And John chapter 11 shows us that this is a real possibility. It was a possibility in Jesus' day, and it is a very real possibility for us today as well. In John chapter 11, Jesus uh, comes to the city of Bethany because his friend Lazarus has died. He had been ill, and they said, Jesus, come and heal your friend Lazarus. They knew that he cared for him and for his sisters, Mary and Martha. Jesus was a well-known teacher at this point, a well-known preacher and a miracle worker. And as he arrived in Bethany, some people thought, you got here too late, Because he was sick, but now his illness has actually taken his life. If you had gotten here sooner, Jesus, you could have done something about it. But in one of his greatest displays of power in the entire New Testament, Jesus reveals something new to them. They knew he could heal the sick, but they were about to see something brand new that they had never seen and experienced through Jesus' life and his ministry. They saw that Jesus had the power of life over death. He had the power of life over death, and he demonstrated that even though we die, we can still live through Jesus Christ. He showed and he demonstrated that, and he taught that to the people. So in John 11, verse 45 we see the results of this miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead. It says, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had, had seen what he did, this is he being Jesus, believed in him. So people believe that Jesus Christ was who he said he was, that he was God's son because they saw this miracle. So that's a result of that miracle. But read on to see another reaction. It says in verse 46, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away our place and our nation. To me, those are some of the most chilling words in all of scripture because these religious leaders understand that these are the religious leaders. They had heard the claims of Christ. They saw the evidence of his miracles and they get this report that he has raised someone from the dead. I mean, think about what an incredible piece of news that is and what a stir that created. Have any of you all ever seen the media accounts where people, they they see an image of Mary, of the Virgin Mary in in something? Uh, I was looking through, I saw one time that people saw what they thought was the image of Mary in a watermark on a sidewalk, And a news crew was out there reporting, and this place had turned into a shrine there on the sidewalk. People coming and bringing candles and flowers and leaving all kinds of gifts, coming and laying there. They were so excited to see this image of Mary in a watermark on the sidewalk. And I saw the image, and if I were Mary, I'd be offended because it wasn't flattering to her at all. You know, seeing this that was there, another lady found a potato chip, friends, a potato chip that had the black spot in the middle that looked like the image of Mary. And they put it under glass, put it on display, and she was trying to sell it on eBay. And people were bidding to buy this potato chip that just had the image and the likeness of Mary in it. Can you fathom what it would be like to hear reports and accounts that someone who was dead is now alive? And you could go and see him and talk to him and ask him his story and what it felt like to be dead and then undead. I mean, you, you had this interaction. It was an amazing thing. It was a huge piece of news. And here are the religious leaders. These guys are charged with the spiritual well-being of all of the people in the nation of Israel. They get a report that Jesus raised a man from the dead and that many people were going and following after this Jesus. And church, I want you to let their response sink into your mind. I want you to grasp their response and their reaction to this news. What was their concern? What was their number one concern with this news and this report? They were concerned with what they thought they might lose or what they might give up if they followed after Jesus. They said, if people continue to go to him, we will lose our place they said, they said, we will lose our place. Now there's discussion as to what they mean by place here. Uh, some say and speculate that they have, may have meant they would lose their place. That is, they would lose their power. They would lose their influence. They would lose their status with the Roman government. And they didn't want to give that up because you see, these men were in cahoots with the Romans They kept the people that they taught and that they oversaw their religious well-being, they kept them from revolting against the government. And in turn, the Romans gave them power and influence and wealth and status and position. And this tells us that they wanted what Caesar gave them more than what Jesus promised them. And you think about that issue In the lives of believers in 2011, do we want more what the world can offer, what the world can give, what we can experience now than what Jesus has promised us if we will surrender and totally commit our lives to him? That is not a question, church, that we should take lightly. Do we want what the world can give or what God has promised and has offered to us in this life, but even beyond this life into eternity with him? And these religious leaders showed their decision. They chose the power of Rome over the resurrection power of Jesus Christ, the son of God. And so that was part of the place they were afraid of giving up their place with the Roman government. But some say that they were referring to their place as the temple, which was their place of worship. We will lose our place and our nation. And that they didn't want to give up this temple, the place of worship, the place where they worked and they they taught people and they ministered. They didn't want to give up this history or their traditions that were associated with the temple. They didn't want to let go of what was comfortable, what was familiar, what was significant in their lives, even if those things were... We're keeping them from the God that they were serving. I want you to hear and understand this. They had so fallen in love with things related to worshiping God that they had rejected God himself. Do you see that? They had fallen so in love with things related to worshiping God that when God himself showed up in their midst, spoke to them, showed them who he was and said, come to me. They said, no, thanks. We'll take the stuff related to worshiping you instead of you. Church, that is scary to think about the hearts of these men. And this picture that we see. And what scares me is how accurately I believe David Platt has revealed this same response deep in the hearts of believers in the American church. I weep nearly every time I read these words in chapter 1. He says, we are giving in to the dangerous temptation to take the Jesus of the Bible and twist him into a version of Jesus we are more comfortable with. A nice, middle-class American Jesus who doesn't mind materialism and who would never call us to give away everything you have. But do you realize, he says, what we are doing at this point, we are molding Jesus into our image. He's beginning to look a lot like us because after all, that is whom we are most comfortable with. And the danger now is that when we gather in our church buildings to sing and lift up our hands in worship, we may not actually be worshiping the Jesus of the Bible. Instead, we may be worshiping ourselves. Those are some somber words, church. And we need to take a seriously long look at our lives and our hearts and evaluate that message and evaluate our reaction to the demands of Jesus for his followers. You see these religious leaders, they didn't wanna follow Jesus because he was calling them to come and give up everything to follow after him. And I would say, don't think that this can't happen to us. I mean, their hearts were so cold and so callous that they had this thought of we're gonna lose all of these things, but I want you to see not just how they were thinking, but what they did as a result. Look with me at verse 49. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. So he said, it's better that we would kill this man than that we in our nation would suffer losing our place. And one commentator, as I was reading, summed up this passage and this thought here from Caiaphas with this warning about asking what's best for me. He says, When we ask what's best for me, there can be no doubt about the answer. This man must die. Never mind his miracles or his teachings or the beauty of his character. His life is a threat to my prerogatives, my wants. And my desires. Therefore, I vote for death. You see, the question isn't what's best for me. The question is and should always be what does God want for me? Knowing that it will always be the best for us. Not what's best for me, what does God want for me? Knowing that it will be the best in my life. And verse 53 tells us the result of Caiaphas' decision. It says that, so from that day on, they made plans to put him, this is Jesus, to death. Does that blow you away? It is hard for me to wrap my mind around these religious leaders doing that. It floors me to think that they are now going to try and go assassinate Jesus. I mean, what would you think about finding out that one of your pastoral staff members has put a hit out on somebody? It may not surprise you with Michael Moore. I understand that. But for the rest of us, it would be a little stunning, would it not, for you to think about your, your pastoral staff reacting in that way? But it doesn't stop there with a hit on Jesus. Look at John chapter 12, verse 9, to see that these men have lost all touch with reality. Chapter 12, verse 9 says, When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. Verse 10 says this, So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. So now they're trying to assassinate two people. And I don't know, it just kind of strikes me sometimes, as just I'm alone with my thoughts, to wonder if somebody ever raised their hand and said, hey, wait a second, Lazarus has already been dead once. Can you kill him again? I mean, do you get some kind of an alternate state after you know, having died one time that it's not going to work you know, this time? You know, how's that going to work? I don't know if they had the conversation, but you know that rattles around in my brain sometimes. But it's a stunning turn of events to see and know of the life and the work and the ministry of Jesus. And then here are these religious leaders responding and reacting in such an antagonistic way toward Christ. So I want us to talk for a minute about what this means for us in light of the demands of Jesus. But before we do, I wanna ask you to make two commitments and you may have heard these before. Number one is this, will you believe everything that Jesus says? Will you believe everything that Jesus says? This is the fundamental issue in this study for us as followers of Jesus Christ. And it's why I titled the the starting message this morning, Start with the Heart. Because I want you to ask and to pray through and think about deep in your heart, deep in your spirit, where it's just you and God, will you believe everything that Jesus says? And don't think for a second that your heart can't or won't deceive you or lead you contrary to the teachings of Jesus. I've emphasized a number of times this morning, I want you to grasp the fact that these are the religious leaders who are rejecting the call of Jesus. And they didn't just agree to disagree and say, okay, well, you think that, we think this, we're going to part ways, you do your thing, we're going to do ours, we're just going to leave it at that. No, these men took it upon themselves to try and kill him and would be successful in killing and taking his life because they so rejected and did not want to follow his demands and his claims upon their lives. And if their hearts, the hearts of these trained educated called men who had given themselves to a life of service and devotion and dedication to God if that could happen in the hearts of those men what do you think can happen in the hearts of biblically biblically illiterate spiritually undisciplined lukewarm Christians in the 21st century I mean think about that and I know those may be strong words but you know what I think that's such a picture of so many people in the church today. In church, we're missing what it is that Jesus has called us to. And it's time for a wake-up call. And it's time for serious evaluation and surrender of our hearts and our lives. Now, I want to say just briefly here, uh, there are individuals uh, in the course of our church as we're, you know, seeking after the call of Christ, doing some things differently. There are some who have sinned against some clear teachings of Scripture uh, by continuing in gossip and and slandering against your pastor. People have said that, well, I can't believe that he's going to preach from a book written by a man and not from the Bible. And I want to go on record and just clarify a couple of things here so that everybody knows and understands this. First of all, I want to ask and just say this, do you understand and recognize how every piece of Sunday school literature that you use to study the Bible, how every sermon you've ever heard preached and every sermon that's prepared in this pulpit, do you know how that comes to be in existence Men take the Bible, God's word, and they take those truths and they write to teach us from God's word and be able to apply it in our lives today. It's a process that's no different. Okay, so I want you to understand and get that foundation of this. And secondly, I would say, you know, th- this radical study, I would take the biblical basis and the foundation and the teachings from David Platt in this book, and I would put them up against Sunday school curriculum, particularly some of the Lifeway stuff that's been out there with their proof texting and there. I'm going to make this fit the lesson theme, no matter if it's in the text or not. I would put this book up against those lessons any day of the week. But church, I'm going to tell you, I'm deeply disappointed that any who have heard me preach in the time that I've been at Mount Pleasant Baptist Church would, would even think for a second that I'm gonna preach a message not found in God's word as a starting point. I triple dog dare any single one of you go back and listen to every sermon I have preached in the time that I have been here and find a week that you did not hear me say, turn with me in your Bibles to this place. Because we start with God's word. So shame on you and those individuals who have spoken these things and put that stuff out there. These baseless, ridiculous accusations. You hadn't read the book. I hadn't even preached the first message on it. And these accusations are flying. I'm going, are you kidding me? I haven't even talked about it at all. So I fully expect that you're going to call all those individuals and you're going to apologize and ask their forgiveness for having made such a statement. But I want you to know, and hear this, this was my thought process in everything from the beginning. The first time I picked this book up and read through it, I said, we need this. Because Radical takes the words of Jesus from the Bible, and it says, these are the words of Jesus. Not David Platt. These are the words of Jesus. Do you believe them? Are you obeying them? And if you're not obeying them, then what are you going to do to start obeying them? That's the premise and the background and the foundation of this study. And I don't think the church universal or our church locally is where we need to be in understanding and applying these things to our hearts and our lives. And church, I'll tell you, it breaks my heart to think that we will spend time looking at the words of Jesus and that when all said and done, I'll ask and I'll say, these are the words of Jesus. What are you going to do as a result? And many people will say and do nothing. God, forgive us for that apathy and that complacency. So with that in mind, I want you to look with me. At some of the words, the the demands, not suggestions or recommendations of Jesus, but demands as he says this. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever will save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake. It's an important clarification. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Someone told Jesus they would follow him anywhere. And Jesus said, you know what? You're going to lose the security uh, and the opportunity to be complacent because we're not going to settle. When you follow me, it is always a journey and a destination that you'll be walking with me. He said, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Another said, let me go and bury my father and I'll come follow you. And Jesus said, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Do you realize that's not flattering to the people who are mourning and who are burying the really, really, really dead person? Jesus said, let the dead bury their own dead. So he's calling those who are living dead because we are spiritually dead apart from and without Christ. And Jesus said, don't go to the funeral. Go and do something important with your life. Proclaim the gospel so that the spiritually dead can become living. They can be alive in me. Someone said, let me go and say goodbye to my family. And Jesus said, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. And later Jesus would say, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And then he adds these words, whoever does not bear his own cross. A cross was a symbol of torture and punishment used to kill common criminals. It's hardly a symbol to be celebrated. Yet Jesus said, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Friends, these are the words of Jesus, not of David Platt. Do you believe them? Do you believe what Jesus said and what he expects of his followers? If so, the next commitment for us then is this. Will we obey them? Will we obey these teachings and this call upon our lives? And if you say, yes, yes, I I want to, I know I need to, then don't follow it up with a but, okay? Yes, I will, but... Because when we get into this whole uh, making excuses and justifications and rationalizations as to why Jesus' words don't apply to us, it changes everything. We say, well, Jesus really didn't mean it that way. Or we'll say, well, he's not called me to do that. Well, that just won't work in today's culture. I mean, yeah, that was in that culture in that time, but that just doesn't apply in 2011. It won't work itself out in the same way. You see, those are modern-day rephrasings of what the religious leaders said. We will lose our place. I will lose, you fill in the blank, if I follow these demands of Jesus upon our lives. Our minds drift to, we will lose this if we obey Christ. The rich young ruler came to Jesus, and Jesus said, Go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And people say, Well, will Jesus... He wouldn't ask me to do that today. And let me give you a couple of applications and illustrations of this and just say, why not? Why would Jesus make that demand of someone in the first century, but not the 21st century? Why would he do it? Why did it apply then, not apply now? You need to have a reason to say, well, 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 that, well that, that's not the case today. Think about it this way. What if Jesus asked you to do that today, to sell all that you had to come and follow him? Would you do it? And if you say no, then I ask, why not? What would be your reason and the excuse? And, and sum it all up, basically, would say, Well, I don't want to lose my stuff. I don't want to get rid of my stuff. I like my stuff. So we're afraid of what we'll lose, or we'll say, Man, if I do that, I'm going to be fanatical, and people will look at me and they'll think they're weird. They're different from us. They're not thinking and behaving like we do. And you know what that is? That's us fearing we'll lose our status, our position, our standing, our ranking in the eyes or the opinions of other people. We're afraid of what we'll lose. Here's another example. Jesus tells us to go and make disciples of all nations. Who was the last person you led to Christ and disciple? Let me take it one step further in that. Have you ever even shared the gospel with someone and invited them to give their heart and their life to Jesus Christ? If the answer's no, then let me ask, why not? So often we're afraid of what people will think of us. We may lose our status Our position with our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers, we're concerned about the opinion of what people are going to think. And we don't want to lose that status or opinion, even though to not share the gospel is a direct violation and disobedience of the command that Jesus has called us to to go and share the gospel with every person that we meet. And friends, I could really get wound up here on making applications of this. Let's think about serving How are you serving using your gifts and your talents and the life and the ministry and the work of the church as God has called you to? Are you doing that? Well, maybe not really, not like I need to be. Why not? Well, because I don't have enough time, which means you've got the same amount of time that everybody else does. You don't want to lose your time for doing what you want to do to spend it, investing in the kingdom of God through the work of the church like the Bible calls you to do. I mean, can we call a spade a spade? Is that the issue? How about this? You know, our mission statement says that we, our desire is to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. How are you doing in your growing relationship with Jesus Christ as you pursue him through the practice of spiritual disciplines? Reading your Bible and prayer and Bible study and memorizing scripture and serving and giving. How are you doing in each of those categories? You say, Well, I've got room for improvement. I could do a little better. Well, why are you not there? I don't want to give up my time. I don't want to get out of bed 30 minutes earlier in the morning because I like to sleep. Or I don't want to turn the TV off because I'm watching those King of Queens reruns late at night. You know, I I got to get that last rerun because I can't remember the last three lines of, of that episode, you know. So I want to see that instead of spending that time in the Bible. So asking ourselves, how are we doing in these areas? And we fear what we'll lose on a personal level if we take these demands of Jesus seriously. But church, we also fear what we will lose corporately for following these commands as well. I don't know if you realize it or not, but Jesus brought change to the religious systems and to the way people related to God in his day and his time, to the Jewish people and to all people for that matter. And people didn't like that change. They rejected that change and they ultimately killed Jesus because of it. And guess what? people still don't care too much for change today. Just let me tell you. And the religious leaders were so afraid they would lose their place, possibly the temple, that they would reject the claims of Christ and they would kill him as a result. And I'm thankful that it hadn't gotten just that bad yet within the church. But church, I want you to know that churches today are changing. Our church today, is changing. Some people love it. Some people hate it, but it's no different today than when Jesus changed how people thought and related to God. That if we're going to be serious about the demands and the commands of Jesus, it may look a little different today than it did a year ago, five years ago, 10 years ago, and 50 years ago. But it doesn't negate the fact that God has called us to share the gospel with people who need to hear today in whatever ways and in every opportunity that we can. But we think, I'm going to lose something, what I like, what I desire, what I prefer, and I don't want to lose that. But you see, Jesus tells us that true satisfaction within us personally and within a church corporately isn't found in what we in what our peers, in what our culture, our society, in what any human being says or thinks about us. True satisfaction, according to Jesus, is found only in complete and total surrender to him. That's the only place that we are going to find true satisfaction. You see, Jesus turns the economy of things upside down. He says, if you lose your life for my sake, you will what? You will gain it eternally, forever in his presence. When you follow Jesus with total abandonment, you lose nothing. You lose nothing, regardless of what the world or even other believers may say, you lose nothing, but you gain the most important thing. You gain Jesus himself. But we don't think like that. We think from this losing mindset. And I didn't realize how much I even thought about this losing mindset until my eight-year-old daughter was praying at bedtime one night. We were using a resource uh, from the Radical Book in the, uh, the Radical Experiment section to help us pray around the world for people, groups, and nations uh, that need to hear the gospel. And we were discussing the nation of Afghanistan. And we were talking about the persecution of believers that are there. And we told our kids that in recent months, some believers had actually been killed for their faith in Christ in that nation. And during her prayer that night, as sweetly and innocently as she could, Anna was pouring her heart out to God. She prayed for the people in Afghanistan, and she said, God, help us share the gospel in Afghanistan, even if it costs us our lives. And those words echoed in my mind that night as I lay in bed thinking about her prayer. Because it's a little embarrassing to tell you, church, that my first thought, was, Anna, I don't want you to go to Afghanistan. Honey, it's dangerous over there. People are dying for their faith in Christ. And if you go, you'll be in danger. We'll just pray for those the Lord's already got over there for the other people that he's going to send to do that. As I lay in bed that night, God, as he so often does, he pushed back a little bit and he said, Curtis, if I called Anna to Afghanistan, would you celebrate that? And would you encourage her to do it and be obedient to my call upon her life? And I wrestled for a long time with an answer to that question. And finally, God was so very gracious to me, and he brought me back to the commitments that I've set before you today. And he said, Curtis, do you believe my words? Will you obey them, even if it costs you the time and the kind of relationship that you would envision and desire with your children? Curtis, do you really believe it? Would you tell your kids that nothing in their life is more important than them being obedient to following my call upon their life? Do you believe that? And honestly, the best I could muster was a reluctant, yes, Lord, I see, I understand. It's not easy, but but, but yes, Lord, I believe those things. And fortunately in that moment, it was good enough because God brought great peace to my mind and my spirit. And he reminded me that That neither I nor my children will ever lose anything by living our lives in total and complete surrender to the call of Christ for us. And so today, my invitation for us is simple. Will you believe everything that Jesus says and will you commit to obeying what you hear? That's the starting point in studying the demands of Jesus for his followers. And I'm going to ask you to make these commitments, and it's going to be real simple. Would you make these commitments to believe and to obey? And then would you trust God to guide you, to speak to you, and show you what this is going to look like in your life? Don't worry about what it's looking like in Curtis's life. What's it look like for you? Obey that, not what God's calling me to. I'm going to give an account for me. You are going to give an account for you. Will you obey?